Paul Williams is our speaker today, and Paul's not new here. Paul's been here a couple of times. He's a friend of our ministry. If you've been here in the summer, we've had Paul in, uh, I think, two or three times. And uh, Paul is the president of the Orchard Church Planting Board. And what I mean by church planting is they put churches where there aren't churches. Uh, Orchard Group has planted 50 churches. They've started 50 churches throughout the United States. And we, Parkview, you all have been part of that financially in supporting that in supporting the churches that have been planted. We've got other projects coming up with them. So we, we're just really excited. Tim serves on the board. I'm going to be serving on the board with Orchard. We're excited about our partnership with them and what we're going to do in the future. So uh, would you please uh, give a warm welcome to our friend Paul Williams. As Bill said, you folks have supported our ministry for a long time now, and New York has changed unbelievably since 9-11. In 9-11, just 10 years ago, 1% of the Manhattan population attended a church like this. Now 3% of the Manhattan population attend a church like this. You think, well, that doesn't sound like much difference. That's about 75,000 more people attending a church like this. And a lot of why that is happening is because of you here. You've helped us start a church in the Midtown area of Manhattan that is just a couple of years old, already running 700 people. You're helping us this fall start another church in the upper tip of Manhattan. You're helping us on the other side of the country start a new church in Ventura, California. You've helped us in Salt Lake City. All of these churches focused on people who don't go to church. It's really cool, and we are incredibly appreciative for it. Now, I've been living and working in New York for 32 years now, and so a few years ago, my wife and I decided we would start splitting our time between New York and the mountains of Colorado. Somebody has to do it. It's tough, I know. But we've been, it was about half time each place. And so about six months ago, I'm in Colorado and I'm at Rocky Mountain National Park and come driving back down to my house. And I came around to Bend and here were two bear cubs in the middle of the road. Nice little cute, cuddly bear cubs. And they see the car and immediately they just stop cold in the middle of the road. Stand up on their hind legs, got the deer in the headlights look, just staring at the car. Finally, they get back down, run over about three steps to the left, stop, stand back up, stare at the car again, get back down, run about ten steps to the right, stand up, stare at the car again. You know, I, I mean, this went on for like a minute. I said, guys, really, you have to make a decision one way or the other. I cannot stay here all day. Finally, they go scampering up the mountain. As I'm driving on home, I thought, you know, there are a lot of times in my life I have felt like those bear cubs in the middle of the road with a deer in the headlights look what am I supposed to do now what direction am I supposed to go now I'm hardly alone in that Dante began his epic on existence the divine comedy with these marvelous words in the middle of the road of my life I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost ever been there in the middle of the road of my life I awoke in the dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Well, this morning we're going to talk about three people Jesus encountered who were in the middle of the road of their lives, and they had that deer-in-the-headlights look, and they trying to figure out what on earth they're supposed to do, and Jesus told them all exactly the same thing. Unbelievably simple, but how to live. So the first story where we find people with a deer in the headlights, look, is the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus had just sent out 70 people two by two when the lawyers showed up. Life does tend to get complicated when the lawyers show up. One of them had a question. He said, what must I do to gain eternal life? 
Jesus, as was his way, answered the question with a question. He said, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, yeah, do that, and you'll live. But now the lawyer, pressing his luck, as lawyers are prone to do, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus, again, as was his way, told a story in reply. This guy was headed down the mountain from Jerusalem to Jericho when he got to this desolate place where there was nothing but burned-out cars and stray engine blocks, and he was mugged and left for dead. This is the New York version of the story. And a priest came by, but he was pressed for time, and a Levite came by, but he had a budget to balance. And the poor guy by the side of the road was not having a real good day. But then a Samaritan came by who understood something about pain and suffering the priest and the Levite did not understand, and he chose to have compassion on the man. And he bandaged his wounds, risking AIDS, put him on his donkey, risking a lawsuit should he fall off, and paid for his medical care without government assistance. And Jesus said, now that's my idea of a neighbor. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel. That makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. Because if I'm to take Jesus seriously, he's telling me my neighbor is just about every human being with whom I come in contact. Let me tell you just a little bit about my neighbors in New York. I have one neighbor in New York who swats flies outside. <laughs> Basically a never-ending task. Now, I figure if a fly is in my house, I have a right to swat the fly. He's in my house. But when we're outside, is this not the fly's house? Still 25 years running, I have a neighbor who swats flies outside. Got another neighbor who stands in the middle of our street and yells at cars to slow down. You know, now, I'm thinking the middle of the street is not the best place to do this, but we live in a German neighborhood. She's a German woman, rather large, formidable German woman. When she tells a car to slow down, trust me, it slows down. That's Janice across the street. Then for years we had a neighbor next door who usually got home, usually, and in the house before he would fall down drunk. But unfortunately, on way too many occasions, he's lying drunk in the front yard asking my then very young children to help him into the house, gave my kids a great sense of safety about their neighborhood. Now, all that, and I live in a really nice Long Island, New York neighborhood. But if I'm to take Jesus seriously, every one of those people is my neighbor, and oh yeah, about seven billion others as well. We'd lived in our house in Long Island for a year, and we had not yet been greeted by one single neighbor. No hi, how you doing? No welcome to the neighborhood. No donuts, no barbecue, no nothing. So finally, after a year, one day I was getting into the spirit of the neighborhood. I was out in the backyard putting up a six-foot stockade fence around my property. I thought, I can do this too. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there stood my next door neighbor. She spoke. She had a voice. She could speak. She spoke. She said, you're not going to attach that fence to my fence post, are you? Then she looked down, saw my post hole already dug, and left without another word. I was sorely tempted to attach my fence to her fence post. Just gave it a little kick instead. You know, as the years went by, though, we became pretty close friends with those New Yorkers. I realize most New Yorkers are not quick to get to know you, but once they know you, ooh, that friendship is for life. They used to take our kids fishing in the Great South Bay. I'll never forget the morning. It's about 10 years ago now that she came out early, 
as I was headed to work, it was clear she'd been watching for me. She said that something horrible happened. Her son, 34, had two children, died suddenly. They, they didn't know why. She said he died last night. He died last night. She said, it's a terrible thing to have your child die. I, I said, I cannot even imagine what that would be like. Oh, you know, it's, it's not much, but every year on the anniversary of her son's death, well, I wish I could say every year, almost every year, I, I remember, and I'll send her a card. Just a card. Usually I try to include some memory I have of her son because they lived with her for a long time. You know, maybe him out in the front yard playing with the kids or some conversation we had where he was telling me about his work and how he served other people in his work. Just something to, to kind of help her know that he's not been forgotten. You know, it's not much. But it feels like the neighborly thing to do. The lawyer wanted to know who his neighbor was. Jesus told him his neighbor was anybody who needed him. The lawyer's response to that is not recorded. So we go to the second time where we find Jesus encountering somebody with a deer in the headlights look. This time it's the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now I have a friend who had a $14 million yacht. It's not a bad thing to have a friend who has a $14 million yacht. But he decided it was not big enough. He had to have a bigger yacht, which would be the subject for another message. And he sold his $14 million yacht to a 39-year-old man who lived in Palm Beach, Florida. When he asked this man why he wanted the yacht, the man said, because I am rich and I am bored. And so it was with the second man Jesus encountered with the deer in the headlights look. He was rich and he was bored. He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus said, keep the law. He illustrated with a couple of choice offerings from the Ten Commandments, and then he added an interesting phrase to it. He said, and I want you to love your neighbor as you love your own self. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I want you to love your neighbor as you love your own self. I was flying home from San Francisco to New York a few years ago, and there was a guy on the flight with me who was an author of a famous series of books. If I told you the names of the books, you would instantly identify them. You probably have a few of them lying around your house. Well, he wanted everybody on that airplane to know he was the author of those books. He's telling the flight attendants, just give me your address. I'll send a copy of the book to you. He's really excited. Well, you know, I got a few books out there. You're excited about your books. I get that. But this guy was going over the top. He had a picture of his books on his suspenders. I'm thinking, you know. So he sits down next to me, and I notice on the flight that he has a briefcase and a brass nameplates on it. And on the brass nameplate is the name of the town he lives in, in California, and the name of the street on which he lives, in California, because only in California would you have this street name, Self-Esteem Way. I guarantee you, nowhere in Chicagoland is there a Self-Esteem Way. Way too many Cubs fans to have a Self-Esteem Way. Just, you know, hey, we don't have one in New York either. You, you know, only in California would you have self-esteem. Wait, you know, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with self-esteem, but we kind of go overboard with self-esteem in America. We think we have a right to self-esteem no matter what. Never mind you're a jerk with your wife and your kids and no one can stand you at the office. You need to have self-esteem. Well, what if you don't deserve self-esteem? You know what really scares me the most 
is what we do with our children. I, I, this, the helicopter parents in New York frighten me, always hovering over their kids, wanting to make sure their child never has any negative experience in life. They can't fail. We cannot allow them to fail. So we give them a trophy for everything. For showing up, they get a trophy. For showing up late, they get a special trophy because we would not want them ever to fail. Well, guess what? Life involves a lot of failure. I mean, you have to learn to navigate failure to find any success in life. This is why from a very young age, I made sure that my son was a New York Mets baseball fan. As season ticket holders we are, no, there will be no Yankees for us because we want to guarantee a lifetime of failure. And again, you Cubs fans understand. But you know, I, sometimes I know my well enough, myself well enough that, that I know that I should not, in fact, esteem myself so highly. A number of years ago now, fortunately, because I hope I've grown since then, 10 or 12 years ago, I'm flying home from North Carolina, and I knew my family had borrowed my car, and so I called them up and I said, hey, look, could you guys have my car waiting for me at the Long Island Airport when I get home? Because uh, I, I want it there, and my son said, well, Dad, we'll pick you up. We always do. And I said, I know you always do, and I'm always waiting 10 or 15 minutes. I don't have 10 or 15 minutes. I've got stuff I've got to do. I want my car at the airport. He's like, okay, fine, fine. So I get into Philadelphia to make my connection to Long Island. I have a call on my cell phone. It's my son. He said, Dad, we ran into a little bit of a problem taking the cars out to the airport. We actually kind of accidentally filled one of the gas tanks with diesel fuel. I said, yeah, that's not a good thing. Um, I tell you what, I'm sorry you did that to your car, buddy, but I, I still want my car at the airport when I get back in an hour. He said, yeah, Dad, it would be your car we filled with diesel fuel. I got angry. I said, I expect my car to be repaired in the driveway 24 hours from now, and I still want somebody's car at the airport when I get back in an hour, and I hung up the phone. I mean, really? A little bit of grace, mercy could have gone a long way, but no. Now, the last thing on earth I needed was self-esteem. But notice, Jesus doesn't say to this young man, I want you to esteem your neighbor as you esteem yourself. He says, I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Self-love is actually very hard work. Self-love is primarily harnessing your strengths. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's say you got some horses, some big draft horses, some Percherons or some Clydesdales, and you put them in your backyard. What are they going to do? They're just going to rip apart your backyard. They're going to tear apart the grass. They're going to break down the fences. They're useless until you put a bit in their mouth and harness them to other draft horses, and then they can pull the Budweiser wagon. You've got to harness those strengths. Self-love is, first of all, recognizing your strengths, allowing yourself to have strengths. In fact, I think this is the last major job we have as parents when our kids are in high school and college is helping our children to discern their vocation. Where are their strengths? What is it that they might be able to do that's a little bit better than most other people where they can have a good life and a decent vocation? We need to help them find their strengths. But then we also need to help them harness those strengths. You know, you look at the truly great people like an Abraham Lincoln or a Mother Teresa, and they all have two paradoxical strengths. They have incredible confidence, but coupled with it, paradoxically, they have incredible humility, two things you rarely see together. Great confidence, great humility. But you put them together, you've got a truly great human being, and the only way you get to do that is by harnessing your strengths, and the only way you learn to harness your strengths is to use those strengths to serve others. 
That's self-love. And it was way more than this young man was interested in doing. Whoa, whoa, you want me to love God, love my neighbor, love myself, and it's hard work, and no thank you. He probably went off and bought himself a $14 million yacht. So we go to the last passage I want us to look at where Jesus finds this time a group of people with a deer in the headlights look. It's the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and it's an interesting time. It's the very last day of Jesus' public ministry. It's the last time he's going to meet with a big crowd. After this, he's just meeting with his 12 disciples. And it has a festive, almost press conference-type atmosphere. I mean, the lights come up in the press room, and all these reporters are out there, and they've all got their questions. And the first guy asks a question about paying taxes to Caesar. Should we? Shouldn't we? Jesus gives a beautiful reply when he says, Hey, give Caesar what's Caesar's, and give God what's God's. Shouldn't be a problem here. And then the second question of this final press conference is asked. The second question asked by an idiot reporter from the first century equivalent of the National Enquirer. I mean, really, the guy asks an incredibly stupid question about multiple marriages and the resurrection. Jesus reminds this guy asking the question that he's a part of a religious cult that does not even believe in the resurrection. You know, you can just see Jesus rolling his eyes, feeling like he's trying to explain the meaning of life to a little neck clam. You know, not, not a great moment. But then comes the final question of Jesus' very last press conference. And I think there's a reason this was the last question of his last day of public ministry. Because in answering the question, it's as if Jesus was saying the entire Old Testament, everything that's come before, boils down to this, to the answer to this question. And the entire New Testament, everything that comes after this is going to spring forth from the answer to this question, like the skinny part of an hourglass when the last little bit of sand trickles through. It's asked by an honest reporter. He says, which of the laws is the greatest? There are 613 of them. He says, which of the laws is the greatest? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there was no surprise to that answer. That's, in fact, exactly what he expected Jesus to answer. That's how they began their services, their worship services, their religious services began with the quoting of those laws. Love God, love your neighbor. But Jesus said something else at the end that blew them out of their sandals. He said, on this are all the law and the prophets based. Now, you've got to understand, these were people who'd spent their entire lives studying the minutia of the 613 laws of the Old Testament. They thought the sum total of religion was keeping those laws, believing the right things. And Jesus now comes along and says, no. Actually, it's not about the 613 laws at all. It's about just two things. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. And Matthew tells us there was dead silence. This is a press conference. They got enough questions to take them to midnight, but now there's dead silence. Jesus starts asking them questions, and Matthew tells us from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions because they got it. Jesus was telling them that pleasing God was incredibly simple, but not very easy. It was loving God and loving their neighbor. You know, I, I really have a ton of appreciation for this congregation. You don't want to just be the best church in the town. You want to be the best church for this town, for this region, for this state, for this nation, for this world. And that's really, really solid. 
I love how many things and opportunities you have to serve others, to be able to love your neighbors. You can do it overseas. You've got one mission group that just came back from Brazil. You have another one that arrived either last night or today from Oklahoma City where they've been working in the inner city there. You've got other mission trips coming up in January. You've got one to Mexico, Cancun. That's not a bad place in January. You have an opportunity to serve in Kenya in January as well. And maybe you can't travel all over the world, but you could work here in the United States. We really need help with a couple of new churches we're starting. One in the northern tip of Manhattan, one in Ventura, California. Honestly, what we could use are people who would move there for about a year, work with that new church for about a year, find a job somewhere, and then head back here at home afterwards. We could use that to help get those two churches underway. We need groups to come and help us just to make the word known in those communities that a new church is starting. And maybe you can't even travel to New York or California, but you can do something right here. I mean, you have an entire campus that's not a church today because they're out serving in the local schools working in an elementary school. I mean, that's what it's about. You're beginning a program in Inglewood where you're going to be working with Restoration Ministries and, and the Chicago Food Depository. We need volunteers to help with that. It doesn't really much matter what you do, but you've got to do something. You can't just stand in the middle of the road with a deer in the headlights look. You need to do something to serve somebody some way. It was my wife who filled my gas tank with diesel fuel. You know, she said to my youngest daughter, you got to go help me take the cars out to the airport. My youngest daughter was all angry about it. I don't have time to go to the airport. I'm supposed to be with my friends. I don't have 15 minutes to spare. It's always interesting to me how you always have one child who's just like you. So they're having this fight at the gas station. Before my wife knew what she'd done, she put three gallons worth of diesel fuel in the gas tank. So she called my son, who didn't know what to do. He called me. That proved to do a lot of good. Um, but there was this construction worker from Long Island who'd spent the whole day working in Manhattan, came over to my wife, asked her what happened. She told him, and he said, you know, you'd be surprised how often that happens. Even though the thing doesn't fit, somehow people find a way to do that. It happens often, <laughs> you know, just making her feel a little better. She said, yeah, well, my husband's so angry, he doesn't even want to come home. The guy said, well, ma'am, with all due respect, I think that's probably your husband's issue. He helped her push the car off to the side till our mechanic could come and pick it up. And he started to leave, but then he came back and handed her an envelope and said, Hey, here, when your husband gets over his anger, take him to dinner. So she opens up the envelope. Inside were two $50 gift certificates to one of Long Island's nicest restaurants. She turns around to thank the guy. He's gone. Gone. It cost $96 to repair my car. It was in my driveway 24 hours later. After those two $50 gift certificates, I figured I was $4 ahead of the game. But oh yeah, I had learned a really important lesson in the process. That somewhere on Long Island, there is an anonymous construction worker who understands a whole lot more about what it means to be a neighbor than I do. You want to please God? It is incredibly simple. Love him and love your neighbor. Simple, rarely easy. In fact, often the hardest thing you'll ever do. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for making it simple. We need simple because this is not a simple world. And Father, give us the courage to love in maybe the most simple of ways. Just to truly care about that person who fixes our car. 
say hi to the person who delivers the mail or an extra large tip for that waitress at the restaurant. Just to invite a friend to church or meet a need that's not even spoken. Help us to understand, Father, that it's our actions, our individual actions, that will tell the world about your love and give us the courage and the ability to love well. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.